Deconstruction is trending, and many are simply struggling to make sense of it all. But what if we deconstructed a person's reasons for deconstructing? In other words, what if we weren't so quick to assume that someone who is deconstructing Christianity is doing so because they're genuinely interested in finding truth? What if perhaps they're looking for something else? In psychology, moral licensing is the process of fooling ourselves to justify bad behavior using other good behavior. If we borrowed that term and used it in the context of Christian deconstructionism, is there a way someone could morally justify their behavior by deconstructing, amending, or changing their understanding of that behavior in order to excuse a lifestyle they want to live? What if there are other people who simply don't want to be unliked? Many people in our culture see Christians who hold to the teachings of the Bible as narrow-minded, uneducated, unintellectual, prejudiced, unread, or just flat-out ignorant. What if you're in a particular subculture like music, theater, or the arts, and you holding to those Christian views makes you the odd man out, or gets you shunned, or ridiculed? Well, you can deconstruct, amend change, or completely throw out your understanding of the Christian faith in order to fit in? What if beneath the trend of deconstruction, there are deeper forces at work? Things like pride, fear, rebellion, or just the general desire to be liked and seen as cool by the culture at large? Everybody to the Beards and Bible Podcast. My name is Josh, and I am joined by Gabe. Gabe, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Yeah, except there's like this beam of good this beam of light coming down here. If you can see it on the YouTube's, it's like right. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if it'll show up, but it's it's just, just the glory of God. Yeah, no, probably something not. Like that, it's something to do with my. <laughs> I don't know what's different today, but anyways, it could be the film of mm. Greece that's on the webcam that, you know, one of the boys left. They were probably playing a video game while eating French fries and touched the little webcam or something. Mm. Mm. I don't know. Well, I have a fly in my office. I'm the only one here in the mm. building, and there's a fly in my office. That is maddening. And that's, yes, I tried for like 10 minutes before we hopped on to try to shoo him out and I thought I got him out of my office and then mm. no there he is you see him there he is <laughs> no I do not see it oh yeah I just ah, saw it yeah. There he's, wow, yeah. yes yeah, he's a sizable fly it's yeah he's a big fly he might be bloodthirsty I don't I don't understand why flies just happen to find you you know what I mean is it like a body heat thing or yeah it's probably an odor thing I don't know I <laughs> just kidding <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I don't have a shower yet this morning, so maybe that's yeah, it. Maybe. How are you doing? Yeah. I'm good, man. I'm real good. Good. Just staying busy. Uh, we are about to launch a third Sunday morning service. Mm. And um, so that would put the grand total for a weekend to five for me, two Saturday night, three Sunday morning. And uh, yeah, mm. so just working really hard with our staff and our leaders to just make sure we're ready for that. How is that like, okay, I know 
giving an honest answer is maybe going to be difficult here, but like, do you ever struggle with, so I, I've, ne- I've never done like multiple services like that, but like, do you ever struggle mm-hmm. with um, like a feeling of sincerity? I mean, when you're, when you're preaching the same thing the fifth time, like yeah. I, I, close I can relate is like being a school teacher. It's like teaching mm-hmm. this history lesson. I've taught it four times already today. Yeah. And it's hard to be excited about it. Yeah. So I think being a teacher for six six years before doing this kind of helped me with that because I I did teach the same lesson five times in a day every day. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, I feel like there's definitely a temptation to mail it in sometimes. Um, but I think that's with every minister, mm-hmm. right? Even if you're preaching once or you're preaching the same thing five times. So I, th- I feel like the answer is yes, there's a temptation to do it, but do I always do that? I'd like to think that I, I try as hard as I know how to, uh, I think a prayer that I've sometimes prayed is, Lord, don't let me serve these people leftovers, like make it fresh, make it new, mm-hmm. help me connect with them. And, um, you know, every service is, is the same, but every service is completely different because the people there are different and what's happening in the room is different every time. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a, it's a unique challenge. I mean, I, and it's funny, I've only preached multiple services. I've never, I've never preached, um, just one, like I've never pastored a church where there's just been one service. Mm-hmm. So anytime I've been asked to speak as a guest somewhere and I just get one shot at it, I've <laughs> always feel like there's so many things that I uh, freak out over because I'm like, man, I just get one chance, you know, oh, <laughs> like yeah, I yeah. don't have a another shot of doing it again. And so um, what's, yeah, what's weird know, there was like, um, does it feel weird when, if you know that someone is there, like maybe they're like ushers or the worship team or something, maybe is still there. They, maybe they stay the whole time and lead worship for every service. But like when mm-hmm. they are watching you give the same sermon or speak on the same points, like for the third or fourth time. Like I, I yeah. could see myself being really self-conscious about them looking at, <laughs> like watching me do that because you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> dude, listen, I, yes. Um, golly, man, they, so we have a live stream team that live streams, you know, our services and those guys and gals, I feel so sorry for them because I have to, they have to listen to me make the same stupid jokes every yeah. <laughs> every service and um, yeah. So there's sometimes I say stuff I don't even know I'm saying it, and people will be like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe you said that. That was so silly." Or what? You know, you made this dumb joke or whatever. And I'm like, "I did." And they're like, "Yeah." Did you? I'm like, "I don't know," because I've been preaching four services now, so I don't even remember that do it or yeah. Not. But yeah, that's funny. Anyway, but yeah, we're excited about it, man. It's just been. Uh, it's been a unique challenge trying is, to get get ready for it. But is um, that a result of of growth in attendance that you're doing the it is adding yeah. the, the is it fourth service? This will be the fifth, fifth service. So we'll, wow, yeah. So we do two on Saturday night now, two Sunday morning now. So we're moving to two Saturday night, three Sunday morning. Now, so um, stop me if this is too invasive, but is that the no? Is that the no uh, such thing? <laughs> Is that the ideal for for experience community? Like, is that like do? I don't think it's the ideal. No. Um, 
the challenge is uh, our particular congregation here in Cannon County, we have a small building. Mm-hmm. And um, there are not many churches like us in the region. Mm-hmm. So there's a town next to us where a lot of our growth this year has been coming from. And so um, we hope long-term to plant a church in that town. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that will alleviate some of this growth. And um, honestly, we need to expand our building, but that's not cheap. So we're looking right now and... Just to do an expansion of our sanctuary would be somewhere in the neighborhood of just with prices, everything, $800,000, right? Hmm. So like the traditional church thing is that I get up there and I guild everybody to start a capital campaign and mm-hmm. let's expand the building, everybody, come on. And, you know, people, people you know, cough up money and all this stuff. And, and so and there might be a time and place for that, but um, I just feel like it's probably a – better use of our resources to just say, well, let's just add another service and that'll alleviate some of the growth for now until we can be in a better position to either launch another church or um, expand our building a little bit more. So, no, not the ideal, but, I mean, definitely better in my estimation in terms of resources than yeah it's it's building a massive facility and going into debt, you know? Right, yeah. it's it's. I mean, that's part of leadership is, like, you weigh out all the options. And while there might not be an ideal one, you go with the best. You go with the best one that'll hold you over, and that's tough. I mean, yeah. leaders have to make a really tough decision sometimes, and um, yeah. But that's at the same time, like that's really exciting, and and um, really really proud of you, and happy for the growth of your church. Oh, thanks, um, man. You know, that's um, that's neat to see because I know I know your heart, and I know. Um, that you you love the people that you shepherd, and I think those people are going to be greatly benefited by being under your leadership and, and shepherding and teaching. So, yeah. Well, just as long as if if somebody sees me on a Sunday afternoon and asks me a question, and I just respond by going yeah, and drool yeah, yeah. comes out of my mouth, then yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. as long as they have that disclaimer, would you say so. you're well past the point of someone walking up and telling you that the toilets are clogged? I think okay. so. I think I, I I think maybe unless it's me that has clogged the toilets because that's mm, happened. Mm-hmm, mm. So yeah, do you ever have you ever just clogged the toilet right before you got up to preach and you're just like you know what? Yes, I'm just gonna like yes, I'm just gonna let this one. Like, <laughs> Can I tell you a funny story? You're up story on the that? stage like preaching and knowing that you just like annihilated okay, that toilet. So, here's my story about uh-huh. that. All right, so I had to preach my grandmother's funeral in North Georgia mm. a couple of years ago. And um, we have a visitation before the funeral, like that morning, several hours. All these friends and family are coming through. But I have to go to the bathroom, and I've got to go before I get up to preach. Mm. And the way that it's done is, like, you process in. It It was me and then, like, my cousins that are pallbearers for the casket and a couple other ministers are all processing in. So I just got to go to the bathroom. So mm-hmm. there's the bathroom right there in this little Methodist church. It's an older facility, but I use it, and then I go to flush, and lo and behold, it's clogged. I'm like, dang, man, I don't, I don't know where any, I don't know who to tell. I don't know any, you know, whatever. So I like wash my hands, you know, get my, I got my mic and everything. Come out of the bathroom, and I'm looking for somebody. To, like, who do I tell? 
And then immediately the funeral director's like, hey, come on, uh, you need to get in line because we're going to process in. I'm like, yeah. okay. <laughs> so, so You're still like walking start getting in line. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So then we go through the whole, and it's a very emotional thing because my grandmother's funeral, it's very emotional. And um, we're like in line to go in. You know, we've already like said goodbye to, to my grandmother. We've shut the casket. We're in line or whatever. And here comes uh, one of my cousin's husband. And I guess he was the custodian of the church. And he's walking by with a plunger. And he's like, well, somebody doesn't clog the toilet. <laughs> and I'm just standing there with my Bible looking really pious. Mm-hmm. And I just look around. I'm like, mm, mm, mm. he's like, yeah, somebody clogged it. I got to go and clog it, man. It's, it's clogged pretty good. I got to go and clog it. And he's just announcing it to everybody. Yeah. And I'm just standing there just trying really hard not to look guilty. He just so gives you a go through the whole funeral service. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> go to the whole funeral service. Do the graveside service. And then we're standing by the grave after everything's over. And there's there's my cousin's husband, Mike, and he's just standing there looking at the grave, too. And I walk over and put my arm around him. I said, Mike, I've got something I need to confess to you to clear my conscience. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, that was me that clocked that Oh, God. <laughs> That's and then he announces it to everybody at the dinner after. Oh gosh, so. yeah, yeah. That's what you get for yeah, being that's my family, being open and transparent and <laughs> confessing your sins to one another. <laughs> they say there's no atheist in a foxhole, and there's no atheist when you. Uh, no such thing as an atheist when you clog someone else's toilet at their house. No, 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 no. You no, start no, praying no. real fast, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. I don't know how we got ourselves into this toilet potty. Yeah, corner, I don't know, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Mike Kirk, if you're listening, I'm sorry about we that. Quickly, we quickly went from teaching, ago, uh, preaching, and conducting five services to uh, clogged toilets. Like no, that's that's any yep. any measure of our maturity, and it's not absolutely sign. Yes. Mm. So uh, anyway, let's get back to let's get back to why we're doing this podcast mm-hmm. in the first place. So anyway, so we're doing a uh, series on deconstruction, <clears throat> and we've already looked at. Um, what deconstruction is, we have looked at a possible reason for deconstruction. Um, last episode, uh, I talked to a buddy of mine that had gone down this path of deconstruction. And um, today, we're going to examine a, another two reasons. So we looked at two last time Gabe and I were together for someone deconstruction, and that was bad teaching and church hurt. And today we're going to look at two additional reasons, and that would be something called moral licensing and then the desire for street cred. Um, So we're going to use some terms today, and some of these terms um, are not the textbook psychology definition of them. But as I was putting this together, I couldn't think of a better term for it. So I'm kind of borrowing a term. The term is moral licensing to describe a phenomena I see. Um, Gabe, have you ever heard of moral licensing? Yeah, I mean, it's rare, it's rare I hear it called that, but I'm very familiar with that. Okay. I've seen that, yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, okay. So, like, traditionally, when someone says moral licensing, if, if they are familiar with psychology, it's essentially the process of fooling ourselves to justify bad behavior using good behavior. So, like, I ran three miles yesterday, so I'm going to have an extra piece of chocolate cake. Mm. <laughs> right or you know what um i just saved a bunch of my like i replenished my savings account mm-hmm. so i'm gonna go 
blow a hundred bucks on a new pair of shoes because I deserve it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm going to cut down on one habit and increase another habit. Like I quit smoking. So you know what? Me eating double cheeseburgers every day for lunch isn't as bad as smoking, that kind of thing. Um, that's traditionally self-licensing, moral licensing. After you complete a positive behavior, you then have a license to do something bad. So that's traditionally how it's used, right? But um, in a broader sense, it is when you feel the need to justify your actions to yourself. So if we take this idea and we kind of bring this into this world of deconstruction, what I, what I have seen, and I'm sure you've probably seen this too, Gabe, is where someone is living a lifestyle or performing a behavior as a Christian that has traditionally been called sin by the Bible and recognized by most Christians as a sin, like what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. Right. So essentially you have three options. If I'm doing something or my lifestyle is called sin, I can either recognize it's a sin, repent of it, and say I'm going to work as hard as I know how through the grace of God to quit doing that and walk a different way. Second thing is I can say, yeah, it's a sin, but, you know, I don't really want to change. This is just kind of where I'm at. Thank God for grace, right? (laughs) (laughs) And then the third... And this is what's very interesting to me, and I'd, I'd love to just kind of lean into that, is you are doing this behavior, you're living this lifestyle. People say this is a sin, but you say, well, is it a sin? So you begin to deconstruct, amend, or change your understanding of that behavior being classified as a sin in order to justify your behavior or your lifestyle. Have you seen this? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You want examples? Have, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, th- I think we see this very prevalently, is that a word? In the, mm-hmm. um, in, in the homosexual community, um, people claiming mm-hmm. to believe the Bible is the word of God, yet also practicing a lifestyle that is extremely counter to the word of God, but it is a, it's, you know, it's an attempt to, there's various ways in which people will rationalize that behavior and say that that's not explicitly called out in the Bible, however they do it. But that's, that's, that's to me, the most blatant and prevalent way that there is moral licensing and and Christian deconstruction going on. Right. In the LGBTQ plus world, right? Right, right. You know, and we'll really, I think, dive into that and kind of get into the details of that. But, but yes, I agree with you. That's where you see it probably the most commonly practiced. Yeah. But that's is somebody's living that lifestyle, and but we we do it we do it you know on a daily basis. Like everybody, you know, anybody can do it. I oh, do sure. it on a daily basis. It's just um in in terms of systematic deconstruction of that that moral standard the Bible has to offer. That's the most prevalent, mm-hmm. but I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to sell myself short and, and 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 not admit that I do that probably on a daily basis as well. Sure. Well, and and listen, when I was going through my journey of you know deconstructing, I I I did this with uh, drinking and partying, mm. right? So, like the Bible is very clear: don't be drunk, don't be intoxicated, and. 
so what I would do is kind of morally license and just go, well, I mean, what does it mean to be drunk, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm mm. buzzed. I'm enjoying myself. I'm having fun. Like, I don't think God would be mad at me doing that, right? I'm not being stupid. I'm not going out and, you know, smoking crack. I'm just, you know, and, and then even like friends of mine were doing it with like marijuana, right? And saying, well, you're not, I mean, come on, it's from the earth. <laughs> it's a, it helps you with the anxiety. How can it be bad, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, people have said this is a sin, but is it really a sin? I don't know if it's a sin. I don't think it is a sin. And I'm going to deconstruct my understanding of being intoxicated on marijuana because I really like smoking marijuana. Mm. And, and so what more licensing is, is essentially where you're doing something, Bible says it's wrong, Christians say it's wrong, and because you want to keep doing that, you're going to challenge that idea and come up with your own understanding of that idea so you can keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, like, here's why deconstruction is super handy with that. Like, if you've got a behavior that you really don't want to stop doing or you don't want to give up, deconstruction basically says there is no single correct meaning or interpretation of a text or passage. So, if you say this is sin, then deconstruction says, well, to you, that's that's what that passage is saying. But to me, that, that passage is not saying that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, the heart of deconstructionist theory really is two ideas. First, the idea that no passage or text can possibly convey a single, reliable, consistent, and coherent message to everyone who reads or hears it. Mm. So, again, that's getting at the heart of absolute truth. Like, there is no single one message from one passage of Scripture. And secondly, the author who wrote that text is less responsible for the piece's content than are the impersonal forces of culture, such as the language and the author's unconscious ideology. In other words, some of the troublesome texts from the Apostle Paul regarding sexual sin, regarding the role of women in church, and things like that, someone would say, well, I mean, Paul's just a product of his time, right? So what Paul was saying, I mean, he, you know, he's kind of more of a victim to his own culture than he is somebody speaking on the authority of God, right? Right, right. So, I mean, again, this whole idea of absolute truth, if you start going down this world of deconstructionism, I mean, you're basically saying absolute truth uh, doesn't really exist, even though the Bible kind of says it does. It's kind of this slippery animal to to get, um, which is crazy because if you you say I still want to be a Christian, but I want to deconstruct to come up with my own understanding of it, then what do you do with the Bible, and how do you get to interpretations from the Bible that justify what you're doing? You, you kind of have to come up with your own weird understanding of the Bible too. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Was it Thomas Jefferson who cut and paste, like literally cut and paste the Bible? What, I mean, yeah. like what Jefferson he thought Bible. was, uh, obligatory, what he thought was like, you know, beneficial to him, uh, and other people. Like mm-hmm. he literally cut out pages and, you know paste others in like it's very interesting right but yeah we kind of have that. right like he just he just kind of wore it on his sleeve i guess more so than than some people do 
Yeah, the Jefferson Bible, I, I believe, and I could be wrong about this, so don't quote me on this, um, We people didn't find it until he died. Mm. So he, he kind of kept that as his own personal belief. But yes, he did that. He, he would cut out portion, portions of the Bible parts that he did not find acceptable. Um, and, and what's so weird about, I think, deconstruction is people will say, yes, I still am a Christian. I still love Jesus. I just have my own understanding or I, I don't really believe that the Bible would, um, you know, discriminate against people or hurt people or say that this is wrong. And, and, and I think we've just misunderstood what the Bible has to say about these things. Which is really crazy when you start to think through, okay, but you're saying that the Bible doesn't have absolute authority because it can be twisted and... Uh, understood differently by every single person, right? Mm. And so it's just a very slippery thing to pin down. Like, okay, so you say you're a Christian. What's the basis of your, like, practice of Christian beliefs and thought? Mm -hmm. And so that's when you get into a whole strange world of just the vastness of the interpretations out there. But, um, Gabe, you said it earlier, the number one trending hot-button issue that deconstruction seeks to morally license is the issue of homosexuality. Mm. And so, I mean, even Josh Harris, um, the guy from Hawk Nelson, I think it's Matt Steingard, I think that was his name. Mm-hmm. Um, all these guys, I mean, one of the things that they will say is, man, I could not accept what Christianity had to say or what evangelicalism had to say about LGBTQ people. Like, it was so hateful, it was so discriminatory, it was so bigoted, it was so intolerant. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, someone starts from that premise, like, man, Christianity seems really intolerant of gay people. Let's figure out how to amend Christianity so it's not intolerant of gay people. Mm -hmm. And so if you start with that premise, man, that's a really, I don't know if you're going to be led in the right path. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, let's talk about this. Let's, let's yeah. just go straight into the issue itself. Cause that's a, this is a big one. Well, it's like, you know, there's um, a, there's a, there's a chess strategy that, um, I forget the name of it. Basically when you're playing your opponent in chess, you could take this strategy and, and mimic their, their move, mimic their every move, um, for as long as you can. And because what you're doing is you're basically pitting them against themselves, because if you're if you're mimicking all of their moves, you're you're playing their strategy that they hoped you didn't catch on to. So you can apply this with apologetics, or you can apply this with with this topic. It's like um, you know, like a, let's say let's say just hypothetically a, a um a gay person comes into your your congregation and they're they're wanting to have a genuine relationship with God and and to follow Christ and. But they, they tell you, um, you know, I, I want to maintain my homosexual lifestyle. It's like that's that's incongruent with a faith that, that I'm teaching. And then they they blow up and say, well, you're being um, you're being intolerant. Um, you're being judgmental. Um, you're being hateful. Right? Is some of the things that people might say. Is like, well, you can turn that around and say, well, aren't you doing the same? You know, you've come into a place of worship. Mm-hmm. You've come into a congregation. You know what we likely believe about these particular topics, and you're demanding that I change my view on something out of respect for 
your desire, and that's intolerance. Um, that's actually mm. really um, invasive of you to do, and I feel yeah. really threatened by that. You know, I feel like that's that's not sure that's not okay to do. But it, yeah, no, that's a really really good point. Mm. But you know, it's funny. Um, I have had multiple conversations with people who are uh, practicing a homosexual lifestyle about my faith and about my practice mm-hmm. of my faith. I've never once felt that from them. Mm-hmm. I've always felt like a sense of kind of, and that's too bad that you believe that because I believe this. The ones that feel like get really militant are not the actual gay people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the ones yes. that get militant yeah. are the, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it, and I, I hate to stereotype, but a, a lot of times it's like a young like advocate kind of angsty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like an advocate that comes in very, very militant, very angry mm-hmm. that is really trying to morally license a friend of theirs or a loved one of theirs, or, um, and we'll get into the desire for street cred, like really trying to not be seen as intolerant or, they don't want to be seen as, as not inclusive. And so they're going to really come in hot with this in a really angry way to, to say that somehow the church has intentionally tried to use scripture to bully and discriminate and hurt mm. um, LGBTQ folks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I, I feel like that's, that's where it comes. Yeah. So, Cause I mean, I've, gosh, I have a lot of friends that would consider themselves gay and lesbian and, we have a in our Murfreesboro campus in in um, Murfreesboro. We have a bunch of of lesbian couples that will go to the church. I actually preached on Romans one at our Murfreesboro campus in a service where there was at least five or six lesbian couples mm. sitting in that service. Wow! And I straight up talked about this: mm-hmm. homosexuality is a sin. This is what Romans one says. Mm. Not a one of them got up and stormed off angry. Mm-hmm. Not a one of them. Mm-hmm. They respected that I said it openly. <laughs> I, I mean, but it's funny. The ones that got really been out of shape about it were the ones that were not gay. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that's interesting. But um, mm-hmm. anyway, that's neither here nor there. But okay, it, this understanding of this practice of sexuality, I think that's where you start with this, right? So anybody's understanding of sexuality stems from their belief of what holds ultimate authority in their life. Mm -hmm. Is it their physical desires? Is that what tells us what's right or wrong about sex? What it is I physically desire? Mm. Because you can understand how that could go way off the handle, right? Because if I physically desire to have sex with someone who I'm not married to, do I just say, well, that's what my desires are telling me. I can't suppress my desires, Mm. right? Mm. So I don't think that really works. Is it my own mindset and my own ideas? Is it the popular consensus of the culture at large? Um, and these are all important things to ask because, in other words, we determine what we believe to be inbounds sexually or out of bounds sexually from whatever we believe holds absolute authority in our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Christians for the past 2,000 years have genuinely, generally agreed that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And it alone holds absolute authority. So therefore, what the Bible teaches about sex is what Christians have looked to as the authority about the topic of sex. 
even if that's very different from what our culture teaches and affirms, which in the first century, the Bible's sexual ethic was revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Like it was revolutionary in the Roman times. And I would even say it's probably revolutionary to early Jewish Christians, I would think. Mm-hmm. And Gabe, you could probably speak to this. I'm, I'm thinking First Corinthians 7 where Paul talks about not depriving each other and giving the man and the woman this like tremendous amount of sexual freedom within the marriage. Mm. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Orthodox Judaism, the sexuality is, is yes, celebrated and affirmed, but it's a little bit more restrictive than that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's definitely more boundaries within than Orthodox Judaism. And I don't know if I can project modern Orthodox Judaism and its um, restrictions uh, backwards into the first century Judaisms, but yeah, I mean, so for instance, you know, there's, if, you know, if your, if your wife is, is menstruating, let's say like in Orthodox families. You said that in a really strange way. But menstruating. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to get, I want to get on this topic and get off as quickly as possible. Oh. But it, if you're watching on YouTube, Gabe's face is turning red and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he said, but he said that word. Yeah. He's, there's so, so like you, you wait from the moment of beginning her period to the end, there should be seven, there should be seven days. And then you wait an additional seven days before you can have sex. So there's two weeks in a month in an Orthodox marriage that are completely blocked off where they can't even touch each other. Hmm. Can't even like wow. some, some homes, like you can't, um, some practices, like you can't pass objects directly from one another. Um, oh, yeah, wow. so th- things like that, like, um, you know, to, to right, avoid, right, right any kind of sexual temptation. So yeah, pretty restrictive um, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. So the Bible's sexual ethic was pretty revolutionary. And so it's always kind of been countercultural mm, always. Yeah. So what if what the Bible teaches about teaches about sex um, is different from what the culture says about sex, but you really like what the culture says about sex and you feel really unpopular because the culture is saying this about sex and you're not because you're a Bible-believing Christian, but you kind of want to go along with what the cultural understanding of sex is and you've got to figure out a way to discredit the Bible or reinterpret the Bible or maybe lower its status as an authoritative source of truth. And I think that's where deconstructionism comes in as a very convenient tool to morally license so that you can come up with an understanding of sex that looks more like the culture and less like what Christians have actually believed about sex for the past 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think this is probably at the heart of many people's deconstruction story. I don't think it has anything to do with searching for truth necessarily. I'm not, I'm not going to say that everybody's like this. I think some people genuinely are searching for truth, but I think a lot of people... Mm-hmm have a really hard time just accepting at face value, hey, if I believe what the Bible says about sex, I am going to stand as a minority in a culture that is very, very, very confused about sex. Mm. And so I think that's where deconstruction gets started for a lot of people is in this area. Mm. Have you seen that? Um, yeah, I mean, I... I trying to think yeah it's like not the 
the people that I've seen kind of deconstruct their faith did so not because of one singular issue, but rather this is kind of one of the spokes in the wheel that got them there. If that makes right. sense. And a lot of it was a lot of it was like um, an obsession with it's a selfish a selfish obsess obsession with uh with um uh, looking virtuous, looking um tolerant, um mm-hmm. looking mm-hmm. that that street cred thing, you know, that we're gonna talk about, but it's like that self right, right, right. so so the way you do that is, is like social media and these subcultures and um progressive uh ideologies are kind of a package deal. And so social right. justice and all this stuff, it's kind of this package deal and part of that is tolerating and accepting and celebrating um, homosexual trans community. Um, and so if your faith that you, you know, you're holding onto is incongruent with that. Then you have, you're left with a decision. What do I do with that? You know? Right. Hmm. Well, what have Christians traditionally believed that the Bible says about sex? Hmm. Well, for the past 2000 years of church history, Christians have generally agreed that the Bible teaches that human sexuality is to be practiced between one man and one woman exclusively in the covenant of marriage. Period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's been the general consensus by Christians for a long time. Right. And that sex was given to us by God for two reasons. Number one, to procreate, to continue to perpetuate the human race. And then two, to create an intimate bond between a husband and wife as a gift that God's given us to enjoy. And then this is what the Bible has taught, and this is what Christians have believed. Anything else outside of what God has given us is outside of the boundaries of God's design, plan, and commands for humanity. So that includes fornication, which I think what deconstructionists sometimes do is they do this thing called whataboutism. Right? So, man, all these evangelicals are so pissed off and angry at the gays, but what about all of them that are sleeping together before they're married? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about that, huh? Mm-hmm. And, and rightfully so. There's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy in the people that would consider themselves evangelical Christians that kind of wink at, you know, a boyfriend and girlfriend sleeping together. Just kind of wink at it, you know, oh, well, that's just, you know, young love, right? Boys will be boys. They're married in God's eyes. Well, they just need to get married, right? And and no, if you believe the Bible, like, that's wrong. That's a sin. That's a sin that's in the same category as homosexuality. Um, so 75 to 95% of Americans will engage in premarital sex. Adultery is outside the bounds. 30 to 40% of Americans will commit adultery sometime in their lifetime. Um, Jesus said that lusting upon a woman... Uh, is committing adultery with her in your heart. So pornography would be considered a sexual sin outside the bounds of God's design. Uh, polyamory and polygamy are all outside the boundaries. And so also included in in this prohibition of activities is homosexuality. Now, here's what's crazy. If you are around in the month of June, every single place you go is celebrating pride month right i mean you can't get away from it every golly we i think we bought i'm trying to remember what we bought that the whole packaging of this box of crackers was rainbow flags 
And I was like, man, I'm just trying to get crackers for my kids. I don't want gay crackers. I just want crackers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Somewhere between 3% to 5% of Americans identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender. So 97 to 95% of Americans are not that. But during the month of June, you would think that 90% of Americans are gay. Mm-hmm. So that, I just think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, homosexuality is identified clearly and consistently all throughout the Bible as outside of the boundaries of God's design, plan, and commands for humanity. I'm going to give three texts, or excuse me, five texts, and then... Um, We'll talk through what some people do with these texts. Genesis 19, 1 through 13. Leviticus 18, 22. Leviticus 20, 13. Romans 1, 26 through 27. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. 1 Timothy 1, 10. All right, so if you're listening to this and you're like, where does the Bible say that homosexuality is wrong? Look those texts up and read them. All right. So, if someone says, well, I feel like these have just been misused, mishandled, misinterpreted, they don't really prohibit homosexuality, how might they do that? Well, there are four basic arguments that people have used to say that these texts aren't actually talking about um, homosexuality, right? So the first is called the prejudice argument. Um, And it says this, not only are Christians who believe homosexuality is wrong misguided, they are intentionally misguided because they are reading their prejudice against LGBTQ people into the Bible. So essentially, the text doesn't really say that. It's just we think it says that because we have homophobia. And so we're we're reading our homophobia into those scriptures. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The second is the mistranslation argument, and it is that the condemnations of homosexuality in the Bible have actually been mistranslated. And the problem is that most Christians do not know biblical Greek or Hebrew well enough to realize that our modern translations on the words homosexual, um, all of that's wrong. Like that's been mistranslated and, and we don't know Greek. And so like we, we actually don't. We don't know what is being referred to, but it really can't refer to homosexual behavior because, you know, that's that's just gotten mistranslated. And the, the word that's used in the New Testament for um, homosexual has been translated homosexual in our English Bibles is the Greek word arson akoitai, arson akoitai. And some pro-gay scholars have said, well, this is a very unusual Greek word. We don't really see it in a lot of other places in antiquity, so we don't know if it really should be translated as homosexuality. And and maybe, and quite possibly, this is referring to men who have sex with young male prostitutes, so essentially dirty old men. So, like, we don't actually know what that is. It shouldn't be translated as homosexual, so we shouldn't say that, you know, two men that love each other in a committed relationship, how is that wrong? They love each other, right? Or two women that love each other in a committed relationship. Like the Bible isn't talking about that. The Bible's talking about something else. But we don't know what the Bible's talking about, but it's not that. 
Um, have you heard this? Mm-hmm. This seems to be one that people use quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, and of course, I mean, other than it being wrong, it's it's um, it's probably one of the verses and one of I guess one of the mistranslations that that major denominations like the United Methodist Church use to justify their um, ordaining of open homosexuals as clergy within their denomination. Yeah. Yeah, we'll break that word down here in a minute and talk about each one of these reactions to, to these four. Um, the third argument is the context argument that some pro-gay scholars have said all these verses that seem to prohibit homosexuality, they've just been yanked out of their context. So if you read them within their context, they're really not prohibiting homosexuality. People just say they are because they pulled them out of their context and said, you know, there's this. And then the fourth is cultural argument that they only apply to the culture at the time in which they were written. Mm. And so, again, Paul is a product of his day and age, right? Paul probably was very homophobic because he was a Jew living in the first century. So most Jews in the first century were very homophobic. So we can't take Paul's homophobia and say, let's let's all be homophobic because Paul was. Mm -hmm. So... Let's react to these four, shall we? So there's the prejudice argument that the only reason that Christians say that these verses prohibit homosexuality is because we have homophobia, and so we read our homophobia into the text. So here's just something that's interesting. If the church has been on this hate filled campaign against all homosexuals, and that's why we believe the verses that say that it's wrong. Um, then does that mean that we hate people who commit other sexual sins? In other words, if, if we only prohibit homosexuality because we hate homosexuals, why in the world as heterosexuals do we also condemn heterosexual sins? So we just, we hate fornicators. We hate adulterers. We hate, did you see what I'm saying? It does. It that kind of falls apart. If you use the reason you're saying this is wrong is because you hate me. I, I don't. I don't think so. I, I just that doesn't hold a lot of water. And I, I have to pause here and say that there that there are probably cases where that is the truth. That that's there are probably people sure. that are bigoted and hateful and masquerade as followers of Christ, and will use these verses to bludgeon people practicing homosexuality and do it in a very hateful way. That is the case. Yes, those mm-hmm. exist. But be, just because they exist and just because they are jerks and just because they have hatred in their heart doesn't make this verse untrue and this moral standard a, a any less viable and authoritative in your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, well said. So then the mistranslation argument that uh, the word used for homosexual in the Greek that's been translated as homosexual, it doesn't really mean that. We don't know really know what it means. Um, but, I mean, really, when you, you lean into that, uh, on something as important as sexual ethics, are we really going to believe that the Bible translators we rely on got it wrong five different times in two different testaments? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's a pretty important concept. Like, the Bible's sexual ethic... We're, are we really going to say that five separate times these translators just kind of, well, we don't know what it means, so let's just translate it homosexual. Um, if that's the case, I think we should probably just throw the entire Bible out and probably the whole Christian faith out, right? Mm. Why even Why even are you appealing to the Bible if that's what you believe about the Bible, mm. right? Mm-hmm. 
So let's look at the Greek word arsenikoitai that pro-gay scholars have said we don't really know what it means. It probably means dirty old men or men who have sex with young male prostitutes. Um, in our English Bibles, that's translated as homosexual. So like even if you don't know Greek, it's pretty easy to figure out what the word means. Um, it's a compound word. Arsen means man and coit or koitas or koitai. Um, we've probably heard this word coitus before. It, it, depending on if it's a verb or a noun, it just means bed. So arsenikoitai literally means men who bed with other men, a, a man who has homosexual sex. Mm. Mm-hmm. Very, very easy to see just from the very basic construction of that word. And so it, it just in looking at the word man who beds man, how, how are you going to say that it doesn't mean homosexual? What else could it mean? Mm-hmm. What else could, could man who, who goes to bed with another man? What, what else does that mean? Right? So then there's the context argument. Where in Leviticus, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy, um, we, we get prohibitions against homosexuality. And people have said, well, these verses have been ripped out of context. But if you go back and read them, it's actually quite helpful to read them in the context because if you read them in the context, they are mentioned in the context of sexual and immoral behavior. So homosexuality is mentioned right alongside with adultery, right alongside with fornication, and right alongside with idolatry. Hmm. So are we really going to assume that somehow one sin on that list shouldn't be considered a sin. Right? Mm -hmm. So even though the rest of all of them are, even though the rest of them, greed, fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, homosexuals, okay, so should we just throw out all the other sins on the list then? You see what I'm saying? It's it's a very inconsistent um, argument Mm -hmm. to say that these verses have been ripped out of context. No, No, they haven't. In their context, they mean what they mean. It's a prohibition against sexual sin, and there's a whole list of sexual sins given. Homosexuality is just named as one of them. And then the last is the cultural argument. <clears throat> and this is where pro-gay scholars say, well, there is a cultural bias, and this is what Paul is talking about. Okay, so so granted, in some cases of Scripture, it seems that the prohibition or the command seems culturally bound, right? Like women wearing head coverings and things like that. Mm-hmm. But are, are you going to take that and say in five different scriptures, mm-hmm. in five different cultures, yeah. including the Hebrew culture and the Roman culture? So the cultures addressed in these five different scriptures are just far too different from each other for this prohibition just to be bound to one culture. Well, then, not to mention the span of time that these various verses are serving as kind of like, uh, you know, layers of, of, of moral injunctions. It's like, yeah, there's there's probably three thousand years. I'm just pulling that number, you know, rough math here. Three thousand right. years of of time being covered here between the first mention of this moral injunction and 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 the last, you know. And it's like that's that's a huge amount of time. Yeah. So the culture, the culture of the Bible, and and the moral injunctions that the Bible is imposing on human beings doesn't seem to be budging at all in that amount of time. So Mm -mm. it's something that's that's very notable. So in 2,000 years after the closing of the canon and writing of of Paul's letters and such, 
like that that should carry through. There should not be any budging of that moral and sexual sure. sexual um, boundary um, in our day and age as well. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is it hasn't for the past 1900 years, mm, right, mm. until probably the last 50 since the sexual revolution, which I think that's pretty suspect to say, okay, so for 1,950 years, Christians have believed this, and only in the past 50 years, Christians are saying, well, does the Bible really say this? Mm-hmm. Only the last 50 years, so that's a pretty new thought. <laughs> and, and to say that somehow Christians have been wrong about this for 1,950 years, and then Jews have been wrong about this for you know 3,000 years before that, I, I would think that's pretty arrogant to make that assumption. Yeah. Yeah, Leviticus 18.22 is a big one that people will hang their hat out and say that that's just forbidding uh, pedophilia, like men having sex with with boys. Mm. Um, Mm. I I made a nine-minute YouTube video breaking that down. I actually went and read it word for word in Hebrew and then looked at that Hebrew phrase elsewhere in the Bible um, and and asked ourselves, you know, like, is this really just talking about sexual intercourse with with boys or is it talking about with, with... is it, is it other males of any age? Um, and I kind of come to the conclusion yep. that it's any males of any age that a man should not have sex with. Um, but I break that down yep. using Leviticus 18.22 because I actually um, had a young man come up to me, and uh, probably 16-year-old man come up to me and tell me that that verse was not prohibiting um, homosexual relations. It was prohibiting ped- pedophilia. And I was like, ooh, man, where did you get that information from? That's That's dangerous, right? So... Yeah. yeah. You know what's interesting? Um, there are some people that choose to go this route of condoning and morally licensing homosexuality specifically, but all forms of sexual sin through Scripture. But there's others who just bypass this altogether and go a completely different route. Mm-hmm. And the route they use is not through the Scriptures. The route they use is through relationships. Mm. In the sense that you'll see a lot of people just tell stories such as I, I had a friend or I had friends who were gay and they also believed in God and they wanted to be a Christian. And, and so how in the world could I ever tell them that they could never be a part of the Christian faith or the Christian church just because of something they can't help? Mm. God made them that way and he loves them just as they are, right? And so that that's not even you're not even going through the route of scripture. You're going around scripture and you're, you know, appealing to emotion at that point. Um, or, or people that will say things like, I just decided I needed to stop being so narrow minded, narrow minded and judgmental in my interpretation of scripture. And I just decided I need to listen to the Holy Spirit's leading. And this has led me to be far more loving, inclusive and full of grace to my LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And, and then like, you'll see people appealing to, the words of Jesus in the Gospels where Jesus tells the scribes and Pharisees, you know, you've neglected the weightier things of the law because you've tithed for your mint, dill, and cumin, mm. and you've, you've neglected, right? And so I've heard people say that, and it's kind of like, okay, well, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Um, Keep reading. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Doesn't Jesus say these things you should have done while also mm. Without neglecting the doing this? Yeah. yeah, so Jesus is not throwing out... The law, Jesus is not saying, hey, just abandon the Bible's teaching. Jesus is saying, no, follow the Bible's teaching, but also truly follow the Bible's teaching and making the main things main and plain. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because there is no commandment in the Bible to tithe mint or cumin. 
Um, I brought this up one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that is a Pharisaical tradition to do. Hmm. So what he's saying is like you're you're focusing on this tradition and you're doing it to the neglect of the written word of God. Um, you can do the tradition, but don't neglect the written word of God. You know, don't. Hmm. Yeah, so I thought that's interesting. Is like. You know, if people will say, "Oh, he's calling out," you know, this commandment, or he's negating this, this or that commandment. Well, first of all, it's not. It's not a. It's not a commandment in Scripture to tithe and cumin. It's just right, 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 right. Um, it's so it's it's tithe, you don't really have a leg to stand on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you're going to use the route where you bypass Scripture and you just go straight to your story of your friend, um, you have to do two things. First is number one, you've got to accept the premise that your friend or loved one that's gay is living a lifestyle that either they can't help or is perfectly natural and acceptable to God. That's the first assumption you have to make in logic, right? Mm -hmm. And then, number two, you have to assume that you disagreeing with them by telling them they're living a lifestyle that's wrong or the behavior they're doing is wrong is hateful and unloving. Those are the two assumptions you've got to make. Mm -hmm. So then you take those premises and assumptions back to your understanding of the Bible and either adapt or throw out sections of the Bible to fit your premise. But in order to be intellectually honest, you have to admit that your source of authority all along has been your own experiences, your own emotions, and your mind. Mm. So your source of authority is what you were willing to accept is true. Not necessarily what is true, but simply what you're willing to accept is true. And I think that that is where someone gets into this kind of moral licensing to justify this particular issue of LGBTQ, but also all slews of issue. I mean, you see this in abortion as well. People will try to say all sorts of manners of things. The Bible never speaks of that. And so it's kind of this, you know, rewriting of science and, and the issue at hand. Um, you know, I think this is interesting. Nobody ever deconstructs the scriptures and ends up with a more strict or conservative ethic concerning sex than they had before. Mm. (laughs) Like, why is it that everybody that that deconstructs the Bible's teaching on sex almost always ends up with a view on sex that looks exactly like the view of our culture? What's Mm. that about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. To me, it... (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it just... That's a little sus to me. You could could say, um, like, you know, I could see a person of reason saying, okay, I'm gonna... I'm gonna go with what's, like, healthiest... And most, mm-hmm. let's just say, like, n- primitive and natural. I could see a person of reason doing that and saying, okay, what's the most, what mm-hmm. does nature do? What, do? what do things in nature do? And, and, and even if you did that, you'd come up with a more conservative, um, binary approach to sexuality. Um, right. It's, so it's interesting, yeah. It's, yeah. So I think that leads into... The desire for street cred. Mm. So the predominant religion of America teaches that self is supreme. Sex is synonymous with love and therefore sex should have no boundaries. Mm. And if, if you talk about boundaries within sex, then that means you're anti-love, right? <laughs> Truth is completely relative and God is whatever we want him, her, or it to be. Mm. That's the predominant religion of America. I, I could say it's um, moralistic, therapeutic universalism. Mm, mm-hmm. 
haunted by Christendom. <laughs> like, not Christianity. Haunted by the use of Christian constructs and language mm. and, and, and Christian forms. Haunted by it. it. It's using things that have been in American culture for a while, kind of importing that into it. But it is not Christianity. It is therapeutic, moralistic universalism using the constructs of Christendom. Mm-hmm. And so, since that's the predominant religion of America, the modern person will often become very angry at the full teachings of Christianity, specifically the Bible's teachings on human sexuality and the exclusivity of Christ. Mm. And those things are only possible, that, that moral universalism is only possible in a society that is is perched upon the shoulders of a Judeo-Christian worldview and ethic. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You cannot mm-hmm. have... Yeah. In a, you, you, you go to any country... A Muslim country. Go to, well, go yeah. to, not even that, but like go to any country that is wrought with moral universalism right now. Let's just... Haiti, for example. Moral mm-hmm. universalism actually played out is going on in Port-au-Prince. Like, w- watch it on the hmm. news. Everyone doing what pleases them and they feel is right. Just with the rampant corruption and all that? Rampant corruption, rape, um, kidnapping, and I I mean, you you name it. It's just all – it is – that state is just – is crumbling. Mm -hmm. But I would say because it did not – it did not have the moral underpinnings that the United States of America – has the only way that I think you could really speak and verbalize moral universalism or moral relativism is doing so, and even begin to entertain the thought of that is doing so while sitting on the shoulders of of a Judeo Christian society. Hmm. But when yeah, that, that person's yeah. legs, on whom you are perched, begin to grow weary, and also maybe you're bludgeoning them on the head as you're sitting on their shoulders. Right, 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 right. Eventually that will fall over and we'll really Mm -hmm. get a taste of moral relativism and we will begin to say, oh no, what did we sign up for? I guarantee Mm -hmm. it. And it will be hell on earth. Wow. That's scary to think about. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah. So like, because that's the predominant religion of America, which we've kind of just said it is therapeutic, moralistic Mm -hmm universalism shrouded in Christian language. The genuine teachings of the Bible and Christianity are seen sometimes as outright dangerous and full of hatred. Mm. And the Christians who actually believe in the teachings of scripture regarding sexuality and the exclusivity of Christ are seen as narrow-minded, uneducated, unintellectual, biased, prejudiced, silly, gullible, misled, uninformed, unread, ignorant, And so here's the big question. What if you don't like people thinking that you're any of these things? Mm. What, what, What if you like being popular and what if you like being seen as cool? And what if you want to be accepted by culture at large? And here's, here's like the, here's where I think where like it comes to roost in your world and my world, Gabe. Mm -hmm. What if you're in a particular subculture like music or the arts. And if you're in music or the arts, being cool is a big deal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
dressing cool, looking cool, sounding cool. Cool is a massive premium, right? I mean, that's that's like a huge deal if you're in particular subculture. But you holding to these Christian views makes you the odd man out and gets you shunned against you ridiculed. You're the only one in your theater production of, you know, Into the Woods that (laughs) believes that homosexuality is wrong. Mm -hmm. You're the only one in your band that believes what the Bible has to say about sexuality. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you're not cool anymore. So what do you do? Yeah, and I, I've been and I've, I've been in the situation where you're in a band and you're trying to um, escalate your your notoriety and your popularity, and it's a fine line that you have to walk. It's like you know you got to be very mm-hmm. careful about um, how you dress. You got to be very careful about how you perform on stage, what you say off stage, what you post on social media, and and so on. It's like this constant self absorption. Uh, it's an right. it's, it's 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 just an idolization of self and yeah, yeah that's the root of much of this is is an, an idolization I of, think so. of victimhood and idolization of self yeah so i think when people get to this point of i want to be seen as popular and cool and accepted by the culture at large what begins to happen is they start to think of ways to deconstruct amend change or even completely throw out their understanding of the christian faith in order to fit into the culture at large and I think the words of Jesus are really helpful. Je- Jesus says in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So if you look at church history, like the disciples of Jesus after the resurrection would be beaten, stoned, flogged, imprisoned. And many of them, with the exception of John, would be killed. And yet Jesus says, do not let the fear of man keep you from proclaiming the truth of who I am. And man, if we just look historically, Christianity has been the most marginalized and persecuted ideology, I would say, Mm -hmm. um, probably throughout human history. I mean, even today in in the Muslim world and in Western countries where secularism or atheism or agnosticism is the predominant worldview, Christianity is is persecuted. I mean, we had your your friend from Ukraine, um, I'm trying to remember his Alexei, name. Yeah. What was his name? Yeah, Alexei, when he was in the Soviet Union and he was a Christian, he was sent to a mental institution because mm-hmm. they said that his Christianity was a form of mental illness. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> it seems like globally Christians – are kind of used to being shunned, ridiculed, and not popular. Mm -hmm. But this is a relatively new thing for American Christians Mm -hmm. because we have been the predominant worldview and culture for a while. And so I think what's happening is many are just trying to figure out how can we adapt and change Christianity so we won't get culturally marginalized because we're used to being culturally relevant, Mm -hmm. culturally accepted. Mm -hmm. And we're not anymore. So what does that mean? Well, let's let's change it. Let's make it to where being Christian is okay in the sense that, you know, the world receives us and accepts us. Hmm. Yeah. 
do you see this playing out? Do you think this is a, a big oh, yeah, yeah. motivator for some people? Yeah, yeah. The fear of rejection is so powerful and so um, pervasive right now uh, within people mm-hmm. and denominations and Christianity. Uh, yeah. But I, and I think if I could do a slight prediction here, you know, that's going to be uh, – we look at Canada as a canary in a coal mine, so to speak. Like there's going to be a systemization of – the enforcement of tolerance in the United States of America that will involve affecting, I believe might even go to the point of affecting like our credit scores and, and what we, Hmm. what we can or cannot um, purchase. And, you know, I think that there's going to be a systemization of, of like in, like in Canada, a, a such a control of what they deem hateful speech um, that it will affect our, our very livelihood. Um, yeah, so we need to be ready. And I think that this is a really good conversation to have. Yeah. Is like, where are we at on this issue? How afraid are you of being rejected? And are you are you prepared for your livelihood to be affected by your conviction on this particular issue? I think it's a very, yeah. very relevant conversation. Yeah. And, and honestly, I think in deconstruction, for a lot of people, this is the hidden motive that some people aren't even admitting to themselves. Mm. And I think for some people, they've not admitted it to themselves, but the fear of man has replaced biblical conviction. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so the willingness to live and speak the truth of God is is basically being overridden by this desire to be seen by the court of popular opinion as progressive, enlightened, tolerant, politically correct, cool, popular. And so really, I think it's just the need to be liked and accepted. Yeah. That, that's become more important to some people than being faithful to Christ and being faithful to what we know the scriptures teach about certain things. And, and I don't think this is anything other than what the book of Proverbs says, uh, the fear of man is a snare. Mm-hmm. It's just a trap. And I, and I think people are getting misled into basically apostasy <laughs> through this trap. And, and man, like I, I think I shared this with my testimony. I, I very much took great pride in the fact that I was a cool Christian, mm. that I could go to a bar and I could hang out and people would say, man, you're not like most Christians I know. You're a cool Christian. I'd be like, yeah. Mm. But what were they saying? I mean, basically they're saying, hey, you're a Christian that – doesn't have any morals or doesn't make me feel bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And they called it being cool. And I was like, well, I like being cool. That's cool. (laughs) Right. Um, But man, I I just think that um, we have to be honest with ourselves. If we're going down this journey of deconstruction, why am I doing it? Like, am I really doing it because I really want truth? I really want God. I really want to know who God is. And if that's what you're searching for, then awesome. Like Mm -hmm. keep searching. But if really you're just looking for a way to license what the Bible says is sin, you start playing that game, man. You can license anything. Anything. You, you, you can find reasons to say that what you're doing is okay if you start playing fast and loose with Scripture. And honestly, I don't even know why you read the Bible at that point. Just go do your own thing. Make your own Bible. Be like Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be cool, you want to be accepted by the guys that you play music with or the people you do theater with or the people that you, you know, work with or, or whatever, um, 
Jesus says, man, you, how can you follow me if all you want is the glory of men? That's what Jesus says in, in John 5 mm. to the Pharisees. Mm. You, seek, you seek the glory of men. How can you follow me if you seek the glory of men? You can't. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we need a we need a refinement, we need a sifting and separating of the wheat and the chaff, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I I my prayer is that if someone's listening to this and and they feel a conviction over this particular topic that they've been idolizing their own self and acceptance of you know, from from various cultures and subcultures that, that they would they would find true peace and, and comfort in knowing that they are part of the bride of Christ. And sometimes it's going to put us in some corners that are very difficult and very unpopular. Mm. Um, but it's worth it in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Well, man, we've appreciated all the feedback we've gotten through this series. Some very real, very raw, very open, very honest conversations from people from all over the place. Yeah. And, uh, Man, if you're going through this, if you're, you've got questions, you've got somebody you know, you love that has questions, uh, that's why we do this podcast. Please reach out to us. Um, if you live in the area that Gabe or I are in, Gabe's in Alabama, I'm in Tennessee, we'd love to have coffee with you and sit down in person with you and talk through it. Um, but I, I genuinely say this, like my heart for people is not to sell you on our particular interpretation of anything. My heart for people is that you would know God and the truth of God mm. and um, that you wouldn't be deceived. Mm. And so, um, man, we're praying for you. And uh, if you, you have any questions or you need more clarity on this, or maybe we said something dumb and you're like, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> well, send us an email. Yeah. Leave us a YouTube comment. <laughs> um, reach out to us. Sometimes we do say dumb stuff. I talked about stopping up toilets for the first five minutes of this episode. Yeah. So, anyway. Well, thanks for listening, guys. We will see you guys next time. See you later. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.